Get some perspective. Bruce St. James and Pamela Hughes. KTAR News on 92.3 FM. Yeah, there's a story that's been making the rounds, not only here locally and within the state, but it's also hit national news. This is the story of two Prescott grandparents. They live in a 55 and over community, and they took their grandson in because he, unfortunately, my goodness, this young man's gone through a lot, lost both of his parents within the course of just a few weeks. Now, this was at the end of 2018, and he's been living with them at that 55 and over community since. Well, the HOA of that community, not happy about it, and have told the grandparents that they have until June to either leave the community or the young man has to find another place to live. Yeah, and this is something, this is very extreme, but it's something that HOAs deal with all around our state on a daily basis, right? They have these CCNR, they have their bylaws, here's how things have to be, and then people come and either say, hey, I want to do it differently, or just do it, and the, and the HOA has to enforce it. And it's no fun from either perspective. No. A, lot of, a lot of people purposely don't live in communities like yeah. that because they don't want to deal with people looking over their shoulder. But the fact is, if you move into an HOA, they don't hide these rules. In fact, if you buy a house with those CCNR, right, you have to sign off yep. that you are aware of them. You've read them. You understand them. You're going to follow them. And that's certainly what happened here. So, look, it's it's on a, on a one-off basis to look at this and say, this, this poor kid, he lost both of his parents. His grandparents are taking care of him now. Of course, he should be able to stay with his grandparents. Why not? That's not the question. Uh, the question for the HOA and all of the people who bought homes there not wanting to have kids living there uh, is what happens the next time? What, what happens when the next set of grandparents, uh, the mom gets divorced and doesn't have a job and can't afford to live, and the choice is they live with her or or you know the mom moves in with the grandparents with her kids or she's on the street. Of course she should come in and do that. Now what happens? Now you've got kids playing outside. Now you've got kids shooting hoops in the, in the driveway. All the things that these folks, for whatever reason, don't want. So, Grandma, in this case, uh, Melody Passmore, uh, obviously speaking out about this. It's amazing how one rule is more important than one person's life. We didn't plan this. We didn't go out all of a sudden one day and say, hey, let's have Clay kill himself and, and let's have Bonnie die and we'll take Colin in. And to heck with the HOA. It's not the way it was planned. Okay, so that's uh, audio that we're getting. Thanks to our TV partners over at ABC 15. You know, it's, it's kind of coming down to one of two things, uh, Barry. Again, Barry Markson in all week for Bruce St. James, who's vacationing. Do you want to follow the rules? Or do you want to have compassion? And I typically am the one... Who you'll hear me talk about compassion, and I have, I have, oh my gosh, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for this family and what they're going through. But by nature, I'm a rule follower. I am. I know that doesn't sound super exciting, but I come at this from the standpoint of no, there's no way this family could have ever anticipated the tragedy that was going to strike them. But they chose to live in a 55 and over community. And tragedy struck. I believe the HOA and the community has shown compassion in allowing this young man to be there for a year and a half. In fact, they filed the, you know, the, the notice that they've got to leave in six months. So it's not like, hey, this just happened last week and we're kicking you out. And, and, and this may sound horrible, but this is how I believe. I think that these grandparents 
may be doing this teen a disservice. This is a young man who lost both of his parents. He lived in California. From what you heard in that, that cut there, apparently one of the parents committed suicide. I have a family member who committed suicide. It was my sister's husband. I know the aftermath of what that looks like and how much love and help and support this young man is going to need. That is where his grandparents' attention and focus should be and loving him and supporting him. And I know they're doing that. I know they're doing that. But I think putting this, you know, getting so much attention in national media and everything, that is so much for just the average adult to deal with, let alone a young man who lost both of his parents. And now this. Yeah, it, look, it's a difficult situation. Uh, you know, a couple facts we haven't really been talking about, but the, the son, the grandson, he moved in with the grandparents before his parents died. Oh, uh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and he was living there as a guest, and the HOA was aware of it, and they made a, an exception and said, okay, you can live here until June of 2020 as a guest, because they have rules in place for guests. And they're honoring that as they go I, forward. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, because that's an important detail. I was under the impression that the parents passed away in California, and then he came to Prescott to live with them. No, this is from um, this is from the um, the parents, uh, the grandparents' uh, attorney. Uh, she said that the the youngster, the the youngster, the teenager moved in with his grandparents before his parents died. Uh, they registered him as a guest with the HOA, and the HOA said he could stay until June of 2020. Now he's a permanent resident. Both parents died, so his status could change. But the HOA honored their prior deadline uh, and said, okay, he can still stay till June of 2020, which is what's going on now. There's a compromise that can be worked out here. You can come up, the HOA can figure out an exception to their rule that is maybe if both parents die, then the grandparents are allowed to bring a kid in or something. You know, you know what I mean? They can make a very specific exception that doesn't necessarily open them up to everybody bringing in kids all the time. But the question I'm, I keep asking myself is, why don't the grandparents just move? That, uh, Why don't they just sell their house, yeah, buy yeah. another house, and, and live with their grandson in another house? And, 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 I'm, and I am compassionate to the fact that these grandparents are in their 70s. Yeah. Moving in your 70s, not the easiest thing. Not fun for anybody. This is the home that they thought that they would, you know, that they would retire in and, and live out their life in. And so leaving that and, and having to deal with, you know, the grief of, of losing loved ones, I mean, that that's hard. That is really super hard, and, and my heart goes out to them for that. But again, it comes down to you chose to live in a 55 and older community, and I choose to live in an HOA community. I did not like when my HOA told me that I had three months to paint my house. I did not like <laughs> when my HOA told me that I had to replace my RV gate because it was a little rickety. Didn't look good. And they gave me a deadline to do. Yeah. I did not like that, Barry. But well, I knew that this is what I chose to do. Right. And so I got it done. Right. And that's uh, that's my thinking with these grandparents. I get that their their cir- their circumstance changed, but we're, we're making this HOA out to be the bad guys. I, it's important to point out this kids lived there for over a year. This is they're being very. Uh, nice about it. They're trying to help and, and do different things. They're not immediately saying get rid of the kid. But their concern is we have rules in place. And if we don't enforce our rules, the law says if we don't enforce our rules now, we can't enforce them later. And they have a legal obligation, a legal duty 
to do that, and because that's what everybody bought into. So they're in a very difficult spot. I, I don't like that we're trying to make the HOA out to be these bad people. They're not bad people. I can tell by how they're handling this. They're, they're good people trying to work something out. But they're put in a very difficult spot because everybody bought homes there under these rules. And the idea is you have to be able to enforce your own rules. Right. And you wouldn't have 55 and over communities if you didn't enforce an age restriction. I mean, the age, the communities exist because of the age restriction. And it is super easy to beat up on HOAs. I mean, come on. It is, it is oh, it's, so it's easy. easy to beat up on them because I don't even like mine. No, all right. But I, I, I get the point that you're trying to make in, in this situation. And I tend to agree with you. But I don't think that this is a, you know, uh, HOA bad. They lack compassion. Um, they've tried to work on this. Right. And and. I have compassion for the family. This isn't an all or nothing type of situation. What it is, is a horrible situation. It's a tragic situation. It's one that I wouldn't wish anybody in. And I think that, you know, both sides are going to have to do what's best for each side. The HOA is is determining what's best for them and their community. I think for the grandparents, they they need to you know take care of their grandson in, in, in fighting this so publicly and in a court of law. Is that really the best way to serve their grandson's needs, given the tragedy that he he's gone through. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case either. And they're going to have to figure that out. My guess is uh, because it's getting so much attention now, lawyers are involved. They're going to come up with the exception that works for both sides and the kid can stay. That's my guess. All right. Strange transition here, but I'll go with <laughs> it. Are people forgetting about the Holocaust? I mean, think about that. Should it be mandatory in Arizona to teach students about it? Because apparently we're forgetting. <laughs> St. James and Pamela Hughes. Pamela Hughes and Barry Markson in for Bruce St. James all week long as Bruce is on vacation. And this particular story is kind of an interesting one. You may be surprised to find out that only 12 states in this country currently require schools to teach kids about the Holocaust. And Arizona right now may become number 13. Yeah, this is uh, this is uh, this is really an amazing bill. I mean, I mean until uh, just a few years ago, only a handful of states uh, had a Holocaust uh, uh, education bill. And what we found is there's declining knowledge about the Holocaust in the United States. Um, in February of 2018, there was a, a survey uh, found that only 22 percent of millennials um, had even heard of the Holocaust, if you can believe that. Wow. And, and that's what's happening now. So you, what, when you look at this and say, well, Holocaust education, everybody knows about the Holocaust. Why do we have to teach it? The fact is we don't know about the Holocaust. It's not being taught in schools right now uh, in Arizona and around the country. And it's not just learning about that portion of history, a world uh, history that really must be remembered. It's also what better way to teach about genocide that continues to happen now in parts of the world uh, than to say, here's, here's what can happen. Here's what people and governments can do. So this is just an amazing bill, and the part I like about it the most, Pamela, is it's two guys, just local Arizonans, uh, Michael Beller and Josh Kay, who got this idea and and on their own went to the legislature and talked to legislators and said, how do we do this? What do we do? And found people who would help, and it's Representative Alma Hernandez. Who is uh, who's the main sponsor of this bill? And this is about to drop. It's going to drop, I think, next week, uh, Pamela. We're giving you a little breaking news here, but I think you're going to see this drop. And here's the great part of the 90 legislators down at the Capitol, 81 
of those 90 have already signed up to be co-sponsors. Interesting. So this is going to pass, I think. This is, I mean, who knows? I mean, anybody can stop things in a committee. So, I, you know, who knows these days? But 81 of the 90 legislators, obviously bipartisan, everybody's on board except a handful of people, and I think they're still talking to them, are going to pass this. And I think it goes to Governor Ducey's desk. And I, 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 I can't imagine the governor doesn't sign this. But what a great thing for Arizona uh, to require Holocaust education to make sure that future generations don't forget about what happened. They learn what man can do to, to their fellow man um, and to keep this uh, this history alive. Not mad at the bill. Glad it's got the support that it has. When you start talking about mandating curriculum, though, where I become a little, I don't want to say concerned, so to speak. I guess my question would be, what other historical events do we mandate our kids are taught? Yeah, well, and I should point out when you say mandate curriculum, the bill does not mandate curriculum. It just says it has to be taught. It leads the curriculum to, okay, the, but, to the but, Board of Education but, but and to the state. what other historical event do we require is taught? And the reason why I ask that, Barry, is because, you know, I'm a product of the Pennsylvania public education system. And my dad went to Catholic school. And I distinctly remember uh, 10th, 11th grade, there was some historical reference that had come up. And I started asking my dad questions about it. And he goes, you don't you don't know this like you haven't been taught this. And I still remember that moment where he looked at me and he's like, what are they teaching you if they're not teaching you this? You know, I learned about this in school and you're not learning about this in school. Unfortunately, I don't remember what the historical event was. And, and the Holocaust is something that, yes, I think we do need to continue to to educate our young people about it because it is still continuing with genocide and other parts of this world. So it's like if history, you know, if you don't learn from it, you're bound to repeat it. But are there other historical events that we require students learn about? Yeah, I, well, I know the the. We, in Arizona now, I know we require certain civics uh, and, and American history lessons. I know there's a test on that now, right? That, that but, uh, but civics is one thing, like how our well, government works. Historic, because here's yeah. the thing. There's so the many things that question. have happened yeah. in history that you could make an argument are critical that young people continue to learn. Unfortunately, as we move forward and the years gap gets so much bigger, people do tend to forget. Yeah, look, you can't you can't teach all history, obviously. And they do say that right now, for example, in the seventh grade uh, and eighth grade, uh, students are learning about World War One and World War Two. Uh, they're learning about human rights and genocide in the eighth grade. I mean, so those things are there. But it's just shocking that that's something like the Holocaust, which was such a, a huge world history uh, event, world civil rights event, murder. I mean, everything is is wrapped up in that. The fact that that's not being taught, that students, that 80% of students are coming out of schools now, and they don't even know what the Holocaust is, uh, I would argue that that's a large enough event uh, that it should be taught in Arizona schools. And I'm good to see, I'm glad to see that around the country, uh, people are seeing this. And again, I think it's important. This bill, it's not saying, here's how you have to teach it, here's what you teach, here's the grade you teach. That's going to be left to the educators. That's where it needs to be left. But of course, but it should be taught. And it it should be, there's shouldn't be a people, entire generations like these millennials that are coming out of school where 80% of them don't even know what that is. How is that even possible? I, I, and, and I get the argument. Um, 
I would venture to say, though, that there are other historical events that millennials coming out of school don't know. Well, and, then they should go to they should go to their schools or to the legislature if necessary and, and say, hey, this is something important and we should teach it. These these guys, Josh Kay, Michael Beller, they did it. They did I'm it on not, their own. Uh, listen, it's awesome. this isn't me arguing against it by any yeah. way, shape or form. In fact, that I this is something that I'd want my daughter to learn in school. I think that there's tremendous value to it. But I do think it opens up the door for others to come and say, well, this needs to be taught to and this needs to be taught to, and this needs to sure. be taught to. Who determines that? Um, that's the question, I guess. That's the question. And frankly, don't have an answer for you. <laughs> uh, we're going to try to get some answers, though, coming up next from the uh, the attorney representing the city of Phoenix in this whole Uber, Lyft, fees, Sky Harbor debacle. The Arizona attorney general says the rideshare fees at the airport are unconstitutional. We'll get reaction from the city's attorney next here on KTIR. KTAR News on 92.3 FM. Get some perspective. Bruce St. James and Pamela Hughes. Arizona Attorney General says Phoenix rideshare fees very likely violate state constitution. A.G. Brnovich joined us in our studio about an hour and a half ago where he said this. Bottom line is, under the Constitution, if it's a new fee assessment tax, it's unconstitutional. Joining us right now on the KTAR Newsmaker line is Jay Kabu. He is representing the city in this case. Good morning to you, Jay. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Nice nice to have you. Um, Tell us a little bit why you believe these fees are legal. Well, we've we've explained uh, to the to the attorney general in our in our written response, and I'm happy to summarize here the reasons why we think they're legal. But the the, the core of it is that the city has owned and operated uh, the airport as a self-sustaining enterprise of the city since 1967. There's no tax revenue that supports the city. It's all operated based on fees and other revenues generated on the airport, and those fees and and other revenues stay on the airport. And the Arizona Constitution, ever since statehood, has allowed cities not only to own, manage, and charge fees for the access and use of their property, but also to operate enterprises and businesses just like any other private operator would. So we're sort of doubly sure in this case that these that these charges are okay uh, because they're both fees uh, to access and use city-owned property and they're, they're charges that are necessary to allow the city to operate its enterprise. And the Constitution has long protected those rights, not just for Phoenix, but for any city. Hey, Jay, Barry Mark's in here. Uh, and let me let me ask you, and I, I think that what the attorney general was saying is uh, that there's a new law in place. I'm not disagreeing with anything you just said, but in 2018, Res- Arizona citizens passed a resolution, uh, Prop 126, that made the fees and taxes illegal, that municipalities couldn't raise them. How is this, how does this uh, legal uh, under the new law that was passed in 2018? So the new law is about taxes. It was it was entitled when it was on the ballot, the, the, the Taxpayer Protection Act. It talks all about taxes. It lists various types of taxes or tax-like fees that are prohibited. And this isn't one of those. Uh, in order to be prohibited, a fee has to be tax-like in, in that it has to be broadly applicable within the taxing jurisdiction. Here, this isn't applicable throughout the city of Phoenix. It's not a fee on the privilege to engage in rideshare services as the Constitution prohibits. This is a fee to do that business at one specific piece of city-owned property. Every other commercial enterprise that operates at the airport and seeks to make a profit from the city's property at the airport pays some type of charge to access and use the property, whether it's 
airlines that pay landing fees and fuel flowage fees, whether it's small businesses and shops that pay uh, rent or other fees uh, to do business at the airport. Rideshare companies are, should be no different, and they have been no different. They've been paying fees all along, as have taxis and limos and other companies. Jay, so again, joining have, us right now on the I'm KTIR sorry, Newsmaker Line is Jay Kabu. He is the attorney representing the city of Phoenix in this Uber, Lyft, Fee, and Sky Harbor scenario that we've got going on here. When we had A.G. Burnovich on earlier in the program, he talked a little bit about what you just referenced. I want to play you what he had to say. We'll come back on the other side and have you react. Take a listen. At the end of the day, what may have happened in the past or how they did these assessments in the past really is irrelevant to the legal analysis. So when the voters approved this in 2018, it was prospective. It was going forward. So in the future, the voters spoke overwhelmingly that they don't want the cities imposing any new fees, taxes, or assessments. And that is exactly what the city is doing. So even though this has happened since statehood, and in 1967, I, what I hear the AG making the argument for there is moving forward, since voters on this in 2018, things are going to be different. Yeah, I, I understand what the attorney general is saying. I simply disagree with that he's correct in his interpretation of the Constitution. And I think he and the complaint filed by Representative Bartow only get to that conclusion by ignoring certain critical words. The, the uh, Prop 126, what's now a part of our Arizona Constitution, doesn't prohibit every fee uh, that a city might charge. What it does is prohibit certain fees uh, that are based on the privilege to engage in a service and that are transaction-based. And this is neither of those uh, for some of the reasons I just explained. Jay Cabo is joining us. He's an attorney representing the city of Phoenix in this ride-sharing uh, a fee issue. Uh, let me go back to what you said earlier about how, how we're addressing this, whether it's a fee or a tax. Uh, could the, in, your, in your opinion, could the city of Phoenix set up toll booths in and out of the airport and charge everyone who's picking up or dropping off at the airport a, a toll or a fee or an access fee, whatever you want to call it? Could, could they do that under Prop 126? Well, what I, without, without speaking to the specific issue of toll roads, which may, may raise issues of, of you know, of, of a law that are separate and apart from this, what's clear is that the city could charge a fee to access its property, whether that was by means of a toll road or a sidewalk or a gate or something like that. And in fact, that's exactly what's happening here. The charges uh, for rideshare companies are triggered once the rideshare vehicle triggers the geofence that surrounds the airport, which is city-owned property. And the attorney general himself acknowledges that the city can charge fees to access or use its property. His report says as much. He then simply goes on to say these aren't fees for the use of property. They're fees to drop off and pick up. But the key isn't what's going on. The key is where it's happening. They're dropping off and picking up on airport property, so it, and the city has a right to charge for that. So is the city's argument that dropping off and picking up at the curb is the same as paying rent if you own a store or a restaurant inside the airport? It's not It's not the same, but it's similar. I mean, rent, rent is a legal term, and it has all kinds of things associated with, but it's a useful analogy or metaphor here because – this business, this business model, transportation network companies or other ground transportation providers pay to access based on when they enter the property uh, because they come and go. So it makes sense that their access charges and use charges would be based on when they enter the property. Uh, for other people, who other enterprises that do business on the airport, um, like shops uh, and other uh, vendors, they, they would pay rent. But the fact remains the same, that all of them are paying a charge for their use of and access to the city's private, you know, publicly owned, but the city's property 
uh, at the airport. Jay Kabu, thank you so much for your time today. That is Jay Kabu. He's representing the city of Phoenix in this ride share fee case. You heard State uh, Attorney General Mark Burnovich on our program earlier this hour. If you missed that interview, you can always go back and download the Bruce St. James and Pamela Hughes Show podcast. Listen to that because the story isn't going away. The uh, State Attorney General is uh, is filed a motion in the state's Supreme Court to have them hear this fast track it, if you will. Special action. But by fast tracking it, we're still talking months. And what does that mean um, in in that interim period with Uber and Lyft? Do they actually leave Phoenix Sky Harbor as they say they would when we've got the Phoenix Open coming? We've got spring training coming when Arizona is really busy. How this plays out in the days and weeks to come, you can count on KTAR to keep you up to speed with all of those developments. All right. Coming up next, former Sheriff Joe Arpaio is out fundraising Maricopa County Sheriff Paul Penzone. Is Penzone worried? We'll talk about it next here on KTIR. Arizona's news station, KTAR News on 92.3 FM. Get some perspective. Bruce St. James and Pamela Hughes. Yes, you got Pamela Hughes and Barry Markson, who's in for Bruce St. James as he's on vacation all week long. And tis the season. You know, it is the political season, 2020. You've got a lot of conversations that are taking place, not just about candidates that are running for offices here locally. Yesterday, Barry, we talked about the Senate race here in Arizona and how Mark Kelly, the Democrat, his fundraised Martha McSally, our our senator, that may change with the whole liberal hack comment that happened yesterday. But um, some more local races here that we're paying close attention attention to and the dollars that are going into these campaigns and what that money may mean. One in particular is the the race for Maricopa County Sheriff. And what we're finding out right now is that former Sheriff Joe Arpaio is fundraising. And not only is he fundraising, but he's actually raised more money than current Maricopa County Sheriff Paul Penzone. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is this is interesting, yeah. but but really not. I mean, uh, Joe Arpaio, over the course of his 20 plus years in office uh, and his national uh, reputation and, and headlines, ha- has a huge database of old donors and potential donors that he emails regularly. If you've ever uh, been involved in anything in Arizona, you probably get emails from the sheriff's uh, reelection campaign all the time. And so he has that. And apparently these folks are still giving him money, not like he used to be when he was the sheriff, but he's still raising money. He's he's raised already um, over six hundred and fifty thousand dollars, Pamela, uh, compared to Penzone's two hundred seventy thousand. But I'm willing to guess uh, or to bet that most of Penzone's money is local donors uh, as opposed to nationwide. Yesterday, uh, Sheriff Paul Penzone joined KTIR and Gatos afternoon and had this to say about it. If you want to look at the numbers and say and I haven't looked at them, but I'd be willing to make the argument that the majority of his money is coming from out of state, so Paul Penzone is absolutely re- leading the fundraising in the state of Arizona in Maricopa County. I think you could probably make a strong argument for so. that as well. A little bit more of what uh, Sheriff Penzone had to say with Gatos yesterday. Yes, money matters to get your name out there to make sure that people have an idea of who the options are to vote for. But money can't undo the past. It can't buy you a reputation of having integrity. It can't trick people into believing that suddenly you got better at something that you weren't good at. And it can't change the 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 past where there were abuses and waste of taxpayer dollars to the tune of 
you know, 125 million in one particular case. All those things you can't buy out of. Yeah, you can't buy out of. And, and when we're talking about over 200 million, just in general, due to lawsuits um, against Arpaio that we, the taxpayers, had to pay out. I mean, I think finally the the people in, in Maricopa County decided enough's enough yeah. and voted him out of office. Yeah, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'll I'll bet you that back in the last election three years ago, uh, Sheriff Arpaio had many, many, many times more money than Paul Penzone did in that yeah. election. And Penn's own one yeah. handily. So I, I don't know in this in this money doesn't always win or lose elections in this one. I don't think it's going to matter all that much. Uh, Sheriff Penzone has, has done his done the job he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I think I think people will judge him yeah. on that job. I agree. Uh, and I think Arpaio has a very uh, steep climb if he expects to unseat Paul Penzone. Yeah, but I think the point that you brought up, Barry, about when you're looking at the discrepancy in money. Right. So Arpaio apparently has over six hundred fifty thousand to Penzone's two hundred and seventy thousand. But where is that money coming from? I do agree that probably a vast majority of what Arpaio has on hand is coming from outside sources. So that being said, if we shift gears a little bit and we take a look at the Senate race here in the state of Arizona, and we talked just yesterday, I think it was, about how Mark Kelly, you know, the presumptive Democratic nominee, um, has over like 20 million or has raised rather over 20 million, whereas Senator Martha McSally has raised about 12 million. Do you think that the vast majority of Mark Kelly's fundraising money has come from outside interests, not necessarily the people of Arizona, because a lot of people outside of Arizona see this as a seat that they could flip to the D side. So they're kind of intrigued and, you know, emboldened to... Invest. I, I guess it depends on how you're defining interest. I think Mark Kelly's numbers are mostly coming from individual people who are donating. They're probably inside and outside of Arizona, but I think more in Arizona. Remember that data. Mark Kelly has 200,000 donors, and the average donation was about 43 or $46, yeah. whereas compared to... Um, uh, co- compared to uh, Senator McSally, uh, she had about 50,000 donors, so about a quarter of the number of donors uh, and about 12 and half the amount of money in a higher average. So I think Martha McSally, as any sitting senator, is going to get more money from a PAC, is going to get more money from organizations. Uh, but Mark Kelly, whether it's just Arizona or around the country, he seems to be exciting individuals who are giving him small donations. Whether it be, you know, Kelly having the money or Arpaio having the money in their respective races, so to speak, money doesn't mean you win the election. It most definitely helps, like you heard there from Sheriff Paul Penzone, to get your name out there um, and and to to let people know what your options are. But in both cases, whether it be in the Senate race or whether it be in the sheriff's race, having a lot of money helps, but it is not the end-all, be-all and the definitive reason as to who gets that seat. Yeah, no, there's going to be a lot more to it than that. And I I think people know who Sheriff Ohio is, and now they know who Sheriff Penzone is. So they're going to make that decision on their own. Hey, Grill. Really quick, uh, they sat the Harvey Weinstein jury. GD uh, Hadid not on the jury. Yeah, Sorry yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. Well, why are you so apologizing to me? <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't know how she was going to be on it anyway. To tell you the Apparently, truth, one of her friends, uh, you yeah. know, another supermodel had, had claimed to have been assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. I could not sit on a jury and be impartial if one of my friends yeah. were was a victim of the uh, the you know suspect. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for the breaking news. All right. Uh, coming up next, Martha McSally is, is, you know, man, she went after Manu Raju. How is that playing here in Arizona? She's even selling T-shirts on it. She's fundraising. We're talking about money, all of those things there with, with, with Paul Penzone and in the sheriff's race here. Um, but is being rude, was that her intention to raise money? Hmm. Let's talk about it next on KTAR.